Good morning, Refuge Church. So glad to be here with you guys this morning. It's a little bit different. Uh, Most of you are at home, on the couch, chilling. And so I'm still glad that we are able uh, to encourage you online. And so this morning, we'll be continuing with our sermon series in uh, Joshua But before I start, I remember in 2007 when I came to the U.S. and I was upset that I didn't even know my neighbor because Americans stayed home. They didn't go out and do anything. And then 13 years later, I'm like, I want the old America back because, you know, most of us are home. We can't go anywhere and it's just frustrating. So I'm so grateful for when things will go back to normal again. And I hope you guys are doing well and are staying safe. So we will be in Joshua 7 this morning. And I'm just going to read the intro that we read every week before we start. Here we enter the middle of a story. God has called his people out of slavery and into freedom. They have left, but they have not yet arrived. The journey has been difficult. Many have been lost along the way. Now they stand on the threshold. The promise is before them. What will it take to enter the promised land? Let's pray and we can dive into our passage this morning. Jesus, thank you for being a good God. Even with everything going on right now, we know that you're in control. We put our trust in you. And just thank you for the spirit that you've given us. Thank you for being with us even at moments like this, Lord. And we just pray that you will encourage us with your words uh, this morning, that you will speak to us and comfort us. Thank you for this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So before I read our passage this morning, I was thinking of what's one of the greatest upset in sports that you have encountered or witnessed. And for me, it has to be the 2014 Super Bowl when the Seahawks won. I know there are so many that are way better than that, but for me, this one... It's really cool for me because I love the Seahawks, and we won the Super Bowl. See, And we played against the Denver Broncos, right? And Peyton Manning, who was a quarterback back then, I mean, he broke the passing records and touchdown records. Like, the Broncos were on fire. You know, people were saying, we've never seen an offense like this. And even though Seattle had the better defense, The week leading into the Super Bowl, not everyone gave Seattle. Only people in Seattle thought that the Seahawks can actually win. But I think everyone around the world, like, no. We will not have a chance against Peyton Manning. He's just too good. He knows how to read defenses, and he's just going to dissect our defense. Russell Wilson is too young, and he can keep up with the pressure of the Super Bowl. But I believed. And at that time, I was going to school in Colorado. So I was in a room uh, full of Broncos fans, and I was the only Seahawks fan. Well, the game started. You know, uh, the Broncos had the ball first, 
and you know we got a safety because of some miscommunication the stadium was so loud and it felt like the 12s brought all the fans to new york during that super bowl anyway let me just say that nobody expected the seahawks to win but we didn't just win we whooped the broncos really bad and i was so happy as the only seahawks fan in that room the christian in me left and i was just screaming at people in your face this is what you get right and the seahawks were the underdogs in that super bowl and they won and this morning in joshua we'll be looking at a similar story like that but in this case the underdog wasn't supposed to win and so what happened why did they win right and so go with me to joshua chapter 7 and you can follow the passage with me in your bible i read but the israelites acted unfaithfully in regards to to the devoted things aken some of carmi the son of zimri the son of zira of the tribe of judah took some of took some of them so the lord anger burned against israel now joshua sent men from jericho to ai which is near beth aven to the east of bethel and told them go up and spy out the region so the men went up and spied out ai when they returned to joshua they said not all the people will have to go up against ai send 2 or 3000 men to take it and do not weary all the people for only a few men are there so about 3000 men went up but they were routed by the men of ai who killed about 36 of them they chased the israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries they struck them down on the slopes at this the hearts of the people melted and became like water then joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the lord remaining there till evening the elders of israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads and joshua said ah sovereign lord why did you ever bring this people across the jordan to deliver us into the hands of the amorite to destroy us if only we had been content to stay on the other side of the jordan oh lord what can i say now that israel has been routed by its enemies the canaanites and the other people of the country will hear this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth what then will you do for your own great name the lord said to joshua stand up why are you doing what are you doing down on your face israel has have sinned they have violated my covenant which i commanded them to keep they have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen they have lied they have put them in their own possession that is why israelites cannot stand against their enemies they turn their backs and run because they have been liable to destruction i will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction go consecrate the people tell them consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow for this is what the lord the god of israel says that which is devoted 
is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. In the morning, present yourself tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. He who is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Early in the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward tribe by tribes, and Judah was taken. The clan of Judah came forward, and he took the Zarahites. He had the clan of the Zarahites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe for, uh, from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua, and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the rope, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Acre ever since. This is a really hard passage because of so many things uh, that's going on in it. And so let's, let's look at the passage together. What's happening in this story? In verse 1. The text says the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things because somebody had taken something that he shouldn't have taken. Right? And how do we know that? And so Daniel preached about the conquest of Jericho last week. right? And so in Jericho, before they entered the city, God gave them a specific command in Joshua chapter 6, verse 18 to 19. And this is what it says. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. 
all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into the sanctuary. And so in Jericho, God gave them a very clear command to keep themselves from the things that have been set for destruction and that they shouldn't take the gold and the silver and the article of bronze because those things were supposed to go into the sanctuary of God. And what was the consequences if they broke that command? It was destruction and disaster on all of Israel. Everybody knew that command. So there was no excuse to do for Achan to do what he did. Now verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is Bath-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send just 2,000 or 3,000 men to take it. And do not weary the whole army, for only a few people lived here. Right? And so Israel had just witnessed God's mighty act in the destruction of Jericho. And Ai is the next city they will have to conquer. The name Ai actually means something like ruin. Right? And... and I was thinking about this, and I laughed so hard. And I was thinking, if I was in a boxing ring with somebody, and I'm like, hey, I'm Ibrahim, and they said, my name is Ruin. I mean, I'm, I would laugh so hard, because I would think I would ruin them on the boxing ring, right? And so the names matter in this place. Because I, I think of soccer. You know, the World Cup, for example, if... Nigeria is in a group, and the group has countries like Brazil or Germany or France. Like those are scary countries you don't want to play because they're so good. Right? And so in that way, I, a country that means ruin, was nothing for the Israelites, right? Because to contrast I with Jericho, Jer- Jericho was impenetrable, and it had fortified walls, right? And I didn't even have a lot of people. So one will expect that Israel will be able to walk, will be able to take I with ease. And this expectation is even reflected in the number of soldiers that they sent to fight. But what happened in verse 4? So about 3,000 soldiers went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this time, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Right? Israel with their mighty army were defeated by Ai. This wasn't supposed to happen. And this actually reminds me of David and Goliath, right? When the Philistines were fighting against Israel, but the Philistines had Goliath. And none of the Israelite army wanted to face Goliath. And then David came, a little boy, and he was able to defeat Goliath. But that doesn't make sense, right? And so Israel with the mighty army should be able to defeat Ai easily. 
And because of this unexpected defeat, the Israelites became like the Canaanite kings who upon hearing the reports of Yahweh's deed, remember in Joshua chapter 2, when Rahab told the spies, like, the hearts of the people are melting because we have heard what God did in Egypt and what he did to Og and Sig. And it says the hearts of the people deserve like water, just like the hearts of the people in Jericho and in some of the Canaanite cities who heard about what God did dissolve like water. Here Israel finds itself responding in a manner fitting to Yahweh's enemies rather than his elect. Verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? You see, from Joshua's cry of distress, we can deduce that Joshua sees the place of the Israelites and the inhabitants of the land as having been reversed. Because up to this point, the Canaanites were consistently delivered into Israel's hands. Joshua complains that Israel has instead been delivered into the hands of the Amorites in verse 7. And then he also adds, it will be better for Israel not to have acted obediently in entering the land if Yahweh will not keep his promise made on the eastern side of the Jordan, that no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. That was the promise. So why was this happening? Because essentially, in these verses, Joshua is accusing God of abandonment, of failing to live up to his promise of presence, which he revealed in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15 to 20, and that he also reinforced to Joshua at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 5. Do not fear. I will be with you wherever you go. Wherever your foot touches, I will give you that city. That was the promise God made to Joshua. And so why is it different? Why the defeat now? Verse 9. The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great name? Right? And so for Joshua, Israel now lies helpless and weak. So all the Canaanites will gather and defeat and destroy Israel, capitalizing on Yahweh's failure to keep his promise. Also, not only would Israel fall prey to its enemies apart from Yahweh, but Yahweh's reputation will be ruined if he fails his people. The Canaanites will question God's power if a mighty God like that cannot even defeat I, which doesn't make sense. How can God defeat Egypt and Jericho and some of the mighty cities but not I? 
some also some biblical commentators rightly hear in Joshua's words an echo of wilderness complaint. Because Joshua, Joshua's accusation that the Lord brought Israel into the land west of the Jordan only to kill them, in verse 9, parallels the wilderness generation, similar accusation regarding their faith. There they said, it will be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Remember when God defeated uh, Pharaoh with the ten plague and Pharaoh said, leave. And Moses took the children and as, as they were at the Red Sea, you know, Pharaoh's army went after the Israelites and the people grumbled and they said, why did you bring us here, Moses? It would be better for us to die in Egypt than to be here. We see Joshua saying the same thing. It would be better for us to stay east of the Jordan than to be where we are right now. But is Joshua's cry before the Ark of the Covenant in the Lord's presence an expression of his lack of trust? A rebellious, rallying cry like those uttered by the wilderness generation against their leaders? Or the cry of the faithful sufferer who seeks to drive God to action on his behalf? I will argue that two features of Joshua's appeal indicate that he is not grumbling like the people in the wilderness did. And my reasons are, first, even in the midst of the betrayal and sense of abandonment that echoes in Joshua's words, he still directs his plea immediately to Yahweh, in verse 7, kneeling before the ark along with the elders of Israel. In contrast, all the complaints of the wilderness generations were directed against Israel's leaders, not to Yahweh. Against Moses in Exodus chapter 14, verse 11 to 12, and also in Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, and against Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 14, verse 2 to 3. Joshua is going directly to God and saying, why is this happening to us? Whereas the Israelites were not going to God. They were complaining to God's leaders. The second reason that I think Joshua is different from the wilderness generation is Joshua does not know what to ask from God. Since God appears to have become unreliable, he only knows what to expect from God. And these expectations are reflected in his concluding appeals to God's reputation in verse 9, recognizing that God's action on behalf of Israel serves as his public face to the rest of the nations. Israel's faith in Canaan cannot be separated from who God is because by challenging God that he has failed to keep his words to Israel, Joshua calls upon God to be true to himself to act according to who he has declared himself to be, the God who has promised his presence with Joshua and to Israel. From Joshua chapter 1 verse 5 and verse 9. And so basically Joshua is saying, God, be who you have said you are. Show these people that you are true to yourself. And that is what Joshua is demanding from God. 
And then in verse 10, the Lord answered. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Why are you, what are you doing down on your face? Israel have sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in their own possession. See, God wasn't interested in what Joshua was saying because God's sharp and abrupt reply to Joshua, ordering him to his feet, shows that grief and self-humiliation will not make up for an ill-paced confidence in Israel's obedience over Yahweh's faithfulness. Instead, he straightaway declares the cause of what has occurred. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed the covenant that I imposed on them. Then God proceeds to detail and reiterate the nature of the crime that has happened. And then in verse 12, that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. See, and God here clarifies that his departure from the midst of the people is the consequence, not the cause of Israel's disaster encountering at I. In effect, God corrects the initial question that Israel should ask in response to defeat, changing it from, why has God abandoned us to how have we failed to keep the covenant? What God wants from Israel is not self-abasement, but action, seeking out and rectifying the wrong that has been done. And then in verse 13, God says, Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. 14. In the morning, present yourself tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward, clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward, family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward, man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing. In Israel. See, even in the midst of his anger, God still demonstrates his faithfulness to the covenant that he has made with his people by offering a remedy to his own wrath. Because here in these verses, God is taking a leading role in the process that will lift the curse from Israel and restore it again to his favor, enabling the continuing fulfillment of his promise. But also, Joshua and Israel's subsequent obedience in carrying out the process that God has instructed them makes them different from the previous generation. Because by obeying what God is asking them to do, it makes them a generation who serve the Lord. Because rather than challenging Yahweh's decrees as the wilderness generation have done in the past, they accept corporate responsibility for Achan's crime. And this is not automatic or logical a response. 
but an acknowledgement of Israel's corporate character. Israel accepts that it rises and falls before Yahweh as a unified entity because the covenant that God made was with everyone. In matters of its covenant's relationship with Yahweh, Israel does not distinguish between the private and the public. Rather, what the individual does affects the entire people. Thus, Israel must demonstrate in faithfulness in that even in the face of its defeat at Ai and the ignorance of Achan's crime, they were willing to submit to Yahweh's judgment with an humility and a repentance. Achan committed the sin. Him alone did, and nobody even knew. But we see Israel as a covenant people saying, we deserve what happened to us. We take responsibility for what happened, and we will try and make it right. That is an act of humility and repentance. And then going into verse 16. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward tribe by tribe, and Judah was chosen. The clan of Judah came forward, and the Zaharites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zaharite come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Kamri, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Then verse 19, then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. See, the culprit is discovered through God's divine intervention. And what does Joshua do? Joshua encourages Achan to give glory to God. Because Achan was trying to hide his sin from God. But we cannot hide our sins from God. And then Joshua told Achan to tell him what he did. And then in verse 20, Achan replied, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe of Babylonian, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. See, Achan acknowledges what he did. And he actually acknowledges that he has sinned against God. He has stolen the things that belong to God. And really, his, his acknowledgement seems very sincere. But he got caught before he confessed. And so, it wasn't a true confession. Also, the process of Achan's sin is a very familiar one. He saw, he coveted, and he took. It was the same sin with Eve in the Garden of Eden from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. She saw that the fruit was good. She coveted it in her heart, and then she took it. And David did the same when he committed adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
He saw a beautiful woman. He took and he slept with her. I will come back to that story later. And then going, by, uh, going forward in verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the rope, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Acre. Verse 25, Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Achan's tent was searched. And all the things that he stole in Jericho was found. And then Joshua commanded that all those things should be brought forward, but also his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his sheep, and all that he was responsible for should be brought forward so that the Lord will repay to Achan the trouble that he has brought upon Israel. And then verse 26, which is probably the hardest passage for us to wrap our mind around. Then Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Verse 27, over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Acre. Ever since. This is a very hard verse because God commanded that Achan and his entire family and all his possession be destroyed. A punishment that seems very harsh for us today. So how are we to understand this dire act of God? There are several reasons for the severity of the punishment that God inflicted upon Achan. The first one is, Achan's sin affected the entire nation of Israel. In Joshua chapter 7 verse 1, God said the Israelites acted unfaithfully and that his anger burned against Israel. So the whole nation was in a covenant relationship with God. And when one member transgressed that covenant, the entire nation relationship with him was damaged. Achan's sin defiled other members of the community as well as himself. The second reason the punishment was severe was Achan's sin caused God's blessing upon the Israelites to be withheld in the defeat at Ai. And remember, the Israelites were routed by the men of Ai, who also killed about 36 of them. Because of Achan's sin, 36 other soldiers died that day. He stole that which was devoted to destruction, and so he brought destruction on others. If he hadn't had done what he did, those 36 people wouldn't have died. God explained to Joshua, that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. 
all because of one man's sin. And then lastly, the punishment was severe because the gold and the silver that Achan stole was, from, was for God himself. The precious metals were to be added to the treasury of the Lord. And in stealing them, Achan robbed God directly. Achan's disobedience was also an insult to God's holiness and his right to command his people in a manner that he sees fit. Achan knew about the law that God gave before Jericho. Do not take this or destruction will come to you. But he still did it. Achan did not also avail himself of God's mercy and patience. Because even though after his, God gave him time to confess his sins, but he had to wait to be caught before he confessed his sin. And also the gold and the silver that Achan coveted had a stronger pull on his allegiance because if they hadn't, he would have confessed his sin before Israel went to I. So is it any wonder that in the face of such insult, God will choose to destroy him? But I think the hardest for me in these verses was Achan's family. Did they deserve to die with him? The Bible doesn't give us exact reasoning for destroying Achan's family, although Proverbs chapter 15 verse 27 says, a greedy man brings trouble to his family. And so in the case of Achan, all I can do is speculate. And perhaps... God destroyed his family as a lesson to the rest of the nation, a lesson they learned after Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16, Korah and some of the leaders challenged Moses' leadership. Basically, they were saying, nothing makes you special, Moses. The Lord is on all of us, and so why should you be leader over us? And Moses becomes, gets upset and tells God what is happening. And in a way, because they were challenging Moses, they were challenging God himself. And what does God do? God opens the earth to swallow Korah and all of his family and the 250 people he gathered to rebel against Moses and Aaron. And as a result of that, 14,000 people also died because of the plague that God sent to them. It was one man who started it all, and yet God killed him and his household and all the people that he gathered to rebel against Moses. Perhaps what God did to Achan was to remind them of what happened to Korah since they had forgotten about it. And so... God used Achan's punishment to reinforce that the sin of one man also affects the people close to him. The second reason is perhaps Achan's children had already began to exhibit their father's traits of covetousness and disobedience and disrespect for God's command. Most likely they helped Achan hide the stuff and were in fact accomplices to the crime. 
Because there's no way for Achan to hide all the stuff that he stole under his house without his wife and his children knowing. And also, there is no way to know all of God's reason for what seems so harsh to us. A punishment of Achan and his family. But also, God doesn't always explain his reasoning to us. And he doesn't have to. See, the story of Achan and many biblical narratives gives us enough information to understand that God is holy and that he is not to be disobeyed without risking dire consequences. So what are lessons that we can learn from this very hard passage? What does it mean for us Christians today? I think the first lesson that we can learn is that, first, we should seek God's guidance even when we think that our plans are in in accordance to his plans. This is what I mean. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 to 15, before before the conquest of Jericho, see, Joshua came face to face with God. In that verse, It tells us that he saw the commander of God's army. And that commander of God's army was God in human form. See, because before the conquest of Jericho, Joshua was out there trying to seek the face of God, trying to seek God's guidance about what he should do with Jericho. But Joshua didn't seek God's guidance before attacking Ai. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So why didn't Joshua seek God before going to I? No doubt he was very anxious to move forward for the Lord and to conquer more cities in keeping with God's purpose for Israel. But being a little self-confident and resting too much on the victory at Jericho, he failed to take time to get alone with the Lord, to inquire of him and to seek his guidance. Because if Joshua had sought the Lord, these four deadly errors will not have occurred. The first one is, if he had sought the Lord, Israel will not be ignorant of Achan's sin. The second one was, if they had sought the Lord, they wouldn't have underestimated the strength of the enemy. And the third one is, they will not have overestimated the strength of their own army. And then the last one is, if they had, if Joshua had sought the Lord, he wouldn't have presumed that God was with him, and they wouldn't have gone to I. The second lesson we can learn from this passage is our sins have consequences. Though God loves us, his holiness is such that he cannot live with evil. The prophet Habakkuk described God in this way. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. And also Paul makes it abundantly clear that sin has consequences. Paul says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. 
A man reaps what he sows. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Paul then describes the end of those who indulge in sinful behavior. The man who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. Galatians chapter 6 verse 8. Though the sin nature may have promised fulfillment, it also results in destruction, just like we saw in Achan. And then the last lesson that we can learn from this passage, which I also think is the most important lesson, is the consequences of our sins do not only affect us, but it affects the people around us too. Achan's sin resulted in the defeat at Ai, where 36 soldiers died. It also resulted in God withdrawing his presence from Israel, and it also resulted in the destruction of his household. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, the story of David and Bathsheba is told. Right? It was during the time of war. And when David, who was the king, should be with his soldiers in war, he decides to stay home. And one day, as he was walking on his roof, he sees a beautiful woman. And he inquires about the woman, and he sends his soldiers to bring the woman who was Bathsheba. And David slept with her. And then in chapter 13, actually, after David sleeps with her, he tries to cover his own sin. By killing her husband, uh, Uriah. And then in chapter 13, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David of his sin. And David is confronted with his sins. And he confesses to the Lord with a very contrite heart. And even though God forgave David for his sins, this is what God said. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, Now therefore the sword will never leave your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite. God was saying, yes, I have forgiven you for your sins, but there will be consequences. The people you love will be affected by the sins. And what happened? The baby that David had with Bathsheba dies. And then God also brought disaster on David's family. His sons killed each other. One of David's sons, Ammon, rapes his sister, Tamar. And one of David's sons, Absalom, actually tries to kill his father. These were all as a result of David's sins. His children were the ones reaping the consequences. Also, what about the Garden of Eden? The Bible tells us that because of Adam and Eve's sin, the whole world sinned because we inherited the sin nature from them. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. But the good news is, just as Adam sinned, brought death and soon to sin to the rest of the world. Romans chapter 5 verse 18 also says, Therefore, just as one trespass brought condemnation for all men, so also one act of righteousness brought justification 
and life for all men. Adam sinned, therefore we sinned. But because of Jesus, who brought righteousness through his death, we also share in that righteousness. And that is the gospel. We sinned. We deserve the consequences, just like Achan deserved that consequence. But unlike Achan's family who died and perished because of his sin, God spared us because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so, yes, this passage is a hard one to chew because of what happened to Achan's family. They didn't deserve to die. But it is different for us because of what Jesus did for us. And we can be grateful because we deserve to die every day. We mess up. We steal. We covet. We do things that we shouldn't do. We disobey God and don't sometimes don't even feel bad about doing it because we do it all the time. And yet, because of what Jesus did, because of what one man did, we, have, we are spared from all of that. And I hope that we can be encouraged by it with the gospel. And that we can appreciate it even more. And I'm going to pray for us as we close. Jesus, thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Thank you that we disobey you, we do things that we shouldn't do, and yet we don't suffer the same consequences that people in the Old Testament did. Thank you for Jesus, who through him we are made righteous with God, who through him a broken relationship with you is fixed, and we are grateful for that. And I just want to pray for all of us with everything going on with the virus. I pray protection on your own people. I pray protection for the whole world. I pray that you bring your peace on us. You comfort us, Lord. You keep us healthy, safe, and sound. And I also pray that we can be an encouragement to each other and to those around us. Thank you for this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.